Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 180th edition. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Stefan Christoph. On the broadcast today, I will be featuring a conversation with Shayana Karadal, who is an attorney and human rights advocate in the legal context and works with the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York City. I first got to know Shayana in the context of organizing work in Montreal as a community activist after September 11th. There were a number of refugee claimants, particularly from Palestine and Pakistan, who had claimed asylum in Canada and were refused and were facing deportation to the United States because they were entering from the U.S. to Canada. There's an agreement between Canada and the U.S. that if somebody has entered Canada from the United States and is refused refugee status, they will be deported back to the United States. This was the legal arrangement um, between Canada and the U.S. until very recently around refugee claimants. This meant that many people were facing removal, forced removal by the government of Canada to the U.S. The Center for Constitutional Rights was really an important organization in the years after 9-11 to defend the rights of communities facing legal frameworks of the violation of their rights. So I worked with them on these cases, but they also organized and worked on very, very high profile cases, including defense of the rights of those detained at Guantanamo Bay. And this is a recent conversation I recorded in September 2023. And I wanted to speak uh, about the current situation of those still detained at Guantanamo Bay and not charged. In some cases, you know, this is decades that people are detained. And this is not in the headlines right now. And the Center for Constitutional Rights continues to track this reality. So I thought it was important to speak uh, about it and highlight this ongoing injustice uh, here on the program. So here's my conversation with Shayana Karadal on Free City Radio. So my name is uh, Shana Cotadal. Everyone calls me Shane. Um, and I'm an attorney um, going on my 22nd year um, at the Center for Constitutional Rights in New York City, where I kind of manage the, um, uh, the Guantanamo litigation project, which, you know, until the stop and frisk case in New York and a lot of policing issues that we work on, it was probably the number one thing people knew CCR for. Um, the center itself is a is a smallish um, uh, legal nonprofit, uh, very similar to the ACLU, which is much better known, um, but was founded about fifty years ago in the middle of the civil rights struggle in the Deep South in the U.S. and and elsewhere. Um, uh, in kind of contradistinction to the ACLU, right? The ACLU is a classic lawyers' lawyers organization, right? They, like the NAACP LDF, they look for a case w that presents a situation where the law can be advanced one little step forward. And they look for the perfect plaintiff uh, to bring that test case. And then they advance the law one step forward by winning and so forth. And then they go on to the next thing and the next thing, right? Um, you know, sometimes politically controversial issues, but, you know, never, you know, all that far ahead of where the progressive part of the voting public is, right? Um, and they're supported by a massive number of members, almost a million members. So they have a political constituency. It's just very far left. CCR, in contrast, had a model that, you know, said, well, look, in the 1960s, the courts, the Supreme Court is pretty progressive, but generally courts are reactionary institutions. They serve the status quo more so even than the elected branches of government. 
and uh, and therefore um, a more effective strategy is to rely on political change. And we're going to use the legal system as a useful tool um, to leverage more activism, right? So we're going to use it to defend freedom riders going down from the north to the south, right? We're going to protect them in court against um, oppressive southern criminal prosecutions directed at activists. We are going to use the legal system in any guerrilla fashion that we can to bring attention uh, to issues um, uh, and do media, um, uh, you know, kind of work around it and organizing work in the streets. And that's how we're going to get political change. So we call this a movement support model, right? The idea is that you're using the law in kind of a guerrilla tactic fashion as a means to an end. You may lose all your cases in court, but you're going to achieve success without victory um, by leveraging the political dimension of the attention that's brought to the hypocrisy of the bourgeois legal order when you lose cases that, that by rights, um, by any moral standard, you ought to win, right? So that is kind of CCR's self-understanding. I think there's also a practical element, though, after 9-11, which is that the ACLU and the NAACP-LDF are indispensable organizations in the American polity, right? Um, we can't do without them. Um, uh, but they're vast institutions with a huge amount of financial and political capital and reputational capital. And CCR was five lawyers who didn't really give a damn. And if it vanished from the earth the next year after 9-11 because of the controversy, around some of our cases, you know, the world would keep on ticking, right? So I think it's a combination of that kind of attitude of kind of, you know, guerrilla tactics with the law, not worrying about winning or losing and relying on media attention um, in the post 9-11 environment, combined with the kind of lack of institutional capital at risk that led us to be the first organization that was willing and able to bring the Guantanamo cases into, into federal courts. And that's around the time that I started. Um, I started at CCR in November 01. A week later, I was a volunteer, and a week later, the first uh, executive military commission order came out, and it became clear that the, you know, all these Nixon-era retread lawyers in, in Bush's White House were going to try to route around the criminal justice system and say that terrorism deserves to be dealt with in a, some sort of military court system. Uh, and then a few months later, they started bringing the first detainees uh, to Guantanamo. In the political imaginary today, I think there's often a break that's understood with the transition between Bush to Obama around the legal process in the United States around the quote-unquote war on terror. Now, of, of course, if anybody's tracking these cases around Guantanamo at all, it's very clear that, you know, there's a continuity. But I think... I wanted to speak to you and I thought of the work that you do because shorthand, I think there's an understanding that somehow the situation has improved or there's been some sort of legal resolution. A lot of the legal maneuvers that you described that took place, you described Nixon era lawyers in Bush's White House, something like that, um, are still on the books. Uh, and you know much better than most. So can you talk a bit about where we're at now? It's September 2023, and Guantanamo Bay detainees are still locked up. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, a number of striking things, I guess, just superficially. You know, last summer, the average age of a detainee at Guantanamo passed 50, right? 
I mean, most of these guys were in their 20s when they were brought in, right? So that's one remarkable thing. The other remarkable thing for me is that we have law students coming in every summer and during the terms to volunteer at CCR, do internships, who have never known um, a pre-9-11 environment. So everything that the courts kind of um, accepted, sometimes grudgingly, sometimes enthusiastically after 9-11 about, um, you know, the notion that of military exceptionalism, that you could capture terrorists, you know, suspected quote-unquote terrorists um, abroad and, uh, and bring them into your physical control and yet not treat them through the ordinary criminal process. That, that notion that there's some other category of military jurisdiction um, has become, you know, de facto accepted. Um, it's the working environment um, for the legal claims, you know. Uh, you know, we won the first Guantanamo case in 2004 at the Supreme Court. They said we have to have some, you know, judicial review of these detentions, what the scope of it was, wasn't clear and intentionally was left open to the lower courts to sort out. Congress, you know, when the Republicans controlled it, um, uh, basically took you know, passed two acts in 05 and 06 to undo it. Um, and then we had to go back up to the Supreme Court in 2008. And so these cases didn't really start getting litigated until the last six months of the Bush administration, right? Uh, when, because of the economic catastrophe, it was, you know, their, their you know, regime, if you want to call it that, was kind of fully discredited. Um, the Iraq war had turned into a disaster. And you would think that maybe there would have been some pushback against this idea that there's a different category of kind of, quote unquote, enemy combatants who don't really have any rights um, that matter in federal court. Um, but that's not how it worked out. You know, and we knew Obama was going to sell us out basically two days into his administration. So if you remember, by 2008, Obama, Senator Obama, Senator McCain, um, his rival candidate, and President Bush um, had all agreed that keeping Guantanamo open in the fashion that Guantanamo existed, namely, you know, a whole bunch of people held, but without any kind of criminal charge, whether in military commission or in federal court, holding people, you know, indefinitely without charge, that that was making us less safe because it was kind of a recruiting tool for our enemies on the ground in Iraq, in the insurgency, in Afghanistan, in their insurgency, right? Um, that it made us less safe as a nation. And so you would have thought that Obama would come in and do everything um, that he said he was going to do during the campaign to close the place, right? And, I mean, his rival, everybody involved um, in the presidency was saying the same thing. And yet, two days in, he came out with um, an executive order, which clearly was the product of some significant internal debate, that said, you know, not that we're going to charge or release everybody, which was what we wanted. We wanted people charged in federal court or released, right? The notion was that, you know, look, there might have been maybe two dozen people at most who were worthy of being charged, and everybody else was basically, you know, a foreigner in Afghanistan or a foreigner in Pakistan, right? Arabs um, who were visually distinct, who we were offering $5,000 bounties for, you know, a classic sweep into detention kind of um, operation where you have a, a profile, you know, foreigners in Afghanistan, you take them all in, put them in your detention center and sort out the wheat from the chaff later. And meanwhile, you can tell the public, look, we captured, you know, six, 700 suspected terrorists. That's how most of these guys got there. And so most of them were never going to be charged, right? Um, so again, that's what we wanted Obama to do, charge or release. Instead, he came out with this executive order that said, we will decide who we're going to charge, and we may charge some in military commissions and some in regular court, depending on what they're charged with. We're going to, you know, 
go through and review everybody's cases and a lot of people may get cleared and they're all going to be released or they're going to be sent to third countries if they're from Gaddafi's Libya and can't go home or some other similar kind of refugee type situation, right? Asylum seekers, basically. Um, but there's going to be a third category. And that third category are people who we don't want to charge for whatever reason, um, but we don't want to release right now either, right? The implication always was that these people are guilty, but we don't have evidence that we can use because of torture, right? Torture being kind of the original sin at Guantanamo. And I think it's important for everybody listening to know that that argument is and always was nonsense, okay? You hear it all the time right now with the 9-11 conspirators, the five guys who you know, are charged with being at the core of the conspiracy, including the person who consensus you know, says and who admitted um, to being the primary planner, far more culpable than Osama bin Laden, a guy named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, right? And everyone knows that Mohammed and uh, one of the other conspirators were waterboarded, that they were all held in CIA dungeons for years and years and years. And the assumption is, well, that contaminates all the evidence. That's nonsense. And any criminal lawyer worth their salt on the prosecution or defense side will tell you this. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin Al-Sheib gave an interview to Al Jazeera admitting everything freely a year before they were picked up. Um, that's admissible evidence. We know from reporting that they've talked to each other in the prison detention yards. Those conversations are not privileged. They're admissible evidence. You know, we don't need any of the torture evidence um, that for some reason the military prosecutors keep fighting to get into these cases in order to prosecute them. And that's, that's the same across the board. Look, if there were two dozen people who were worth charging at Gitmo, and I, that might be a high side number, you know, there are other ways to get evidence against people, including flipping their co-conspirators. That's how the government does it with drug dealing conspiracies, you know, just like, you know, alleged, you know, secret terrorism cells. Um, you know, it's a bunch of people conspiring together, agreeing to commit a crime uh, under conditions of great secrecy. Um, but we somehow managed to prosecute people successfully by getting low level people and offering them, um, uh, you know, leniency in sentencing or better conditions while they serve their sentences in exchange for testimony, right? And the great thing about that system is that you can condition the benefit, the leniency, or the, the nice conditions of confinement on truth-telling, right? We, this is the only system we know for extracting truth from people who don't want to give it to you, right? We know torture doesn't work, and that's a whole other half-hour discussion, <laughs> Stefan. But, um, you know, the only system that we know is to give people lawyers to negotiate plea deals and condition um, the benefit in the future on telling the truth now, because if you know there are ways that lies end up getting uncovered even after trials have happened, right? So that's you know in a nutshell kind of you know the issue, right? That uh, you know there's been this notion floating around that the Bush people screwed up at the outset, they used torture, and now we somehow have to accommodate that, and the way we're going to accommodate it is keep the trials and military commissions that somehow are going to be more lenient about torture evidence. And that there's also going to be this nether category of people that we're not going to charge and try, but we're also not going to release. And the reason is somehow that we have the, the goods on them, but it's contaminated by torture, and we just can't figure out how to prosecute them, even in commissions. And so that third category was the real sellout. Obama acknowledged in his executive order on his second day in office that that category existed and that he, he might put some people in it. And, you know, in large part, when Trump, you know, assumed office after Obama left, a lot of the people left at Gitmo basically fit into that category. They weren't cleared, um, but we were never going to charge them either. 
And that's a big reason there are still people who are not charged but not released at Gitmo. You know, out of 30 total, there are 11 in some stage of the commission process. Um, There are 16 who are cleared for release, and there are three people still in this nether category, including one of the original waterboardies, Abu Zubaydah. There's this very profound um, political point that can be drawn, I think, from a lot of what you shared. Um, Just looking at this idea of the assumption that the American political system has or holds some sort of notion of justice, and therefore this category is something that should be preserved as a last case scenario. So it's, it's assuming this sort of liberal framework that the American justice system is overall something that is workable, even in the most extreme moments, but power needs this category to quote unquote, keep people safe. Just maybe breaking down this notion and sort of the ways that, that the political justifications for like, there's the people that Abu Zubaydah, who you mentioned, but then there's the larger sort of cultural political impact of not closing that option that remains. You know, I think the most important point to make maybe is that it's, it's not out of necessity, right? I mean, even the most extreme cases, the waterboard and 9-11 conspirators, right? Those folks can be tried You know, the risk in a jury system, as we have in the U.S., um, is that the jury is so outraged by what happened um, uh, to them that it decides to to route around the law and to route around the facts and, you know, to acquit on some charges or to acquit on all charges or to not grant the death penalty, you know, which is also an issue in the U.S., right? Um, uh, You know, in order to express outrage, right? Um, The other issue is that you know, the the facts of the torture would come out again in court. And I think that's a bigger issue, right? So, you know, let's put to one side the false argument that, um, you know, in order to assert power, in order to be able to try these people, um, people who are worth trying, that we have to, you know, somehow use a military court system or somehow keep people indefinitely because we can't try them, right? It's just just not factually true. It doesn't withstand scrutiny. but the notion that, um, uh, you know, somehow torture presents a problem, um, you know, it really kind of boils down to that, I think. You know, if you, if you accept my argument, there is still a risk for the government, um, which is that, that risk of outrage. And we saw it um, with one of our clients who pled uh, and cooperated in the commission system, a you know, fellow who, you know, used to address Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, his uncle. Um, his jury recommended, um, uh, you know, a, a relatively lenient sentence and wrote a letter to the judge expressing outrage and saying that what happened to him was a stain on America's kind of moral um, authority, right? And, and that is ironically what I think the, the folks in the White House and the prosecutors are afraid of. Um, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, we know that there are a lot of plea negotiations happening um, in the commissions, particularly that 9-11 trial where the basic deal would, would be in order to take the death penalty off the table and perhaps allow these guys to serve out their sentences at Guantanamo, where conditions now, ironically, are much better than they are in federal terrorism um, prisons, um, that in exchange for those two things, um, the defendants would plead guilty. Um, uh, and yet the administration can't bring itself um, uh, to do that. Um, uh, apparently it was vetoed at the, at the White House level. 
Um, so, you know, we'll see where that goes. Um, uh, you know, I mean, look, it's not ideal in any sense um, to have cases resolved in a military commission, but in some respects, there are benefits. Um, you know, I mean, the, I think conditions of confinement in particular are much better at Guantanamo. Um, uh, people are always amazed when I say this, but they are much better than they are in the federal prisons in which terrorism convicts are held, which are, you know, essentially kind of scientifically designed antiseptic torture facilities, right? Solitary confinement um, of the worst sort, you know, seen anywhere on the planet, right? Um, we have it down to a science at places like ADX Florence, where Ramzi Youssef is held in a little box along with another guy, you know, 50 yards from him who killed some prison guards in Supermax, right? Um, so, so yeah, um, you know, it's not ideal, but those would be resolutions, I think, that, you know, one presumes, you know, the defendant's counsel and the defendants can live with. Um, and that leaves really the, the question of the 19 others, you know, the three people in the nether category who we assume will eventually be cleared for release, you know, Zubeda, who was notoriously horribly tortured, the first guy who had a torture plan written in D.C. for him. Um, uh, you know, he is one of the three uncleared people, but I think, you know, at some point, um, you know, the, the clearance board at Guantanamo will, will you know, uh, grow a spine and and decide that he should be released as well because he's not going to be charged. And then you have a batch basically of 19 people who are waiting to be sent home, right? Um, and uh, and then that becomes, you know, a political problem on the order of what Obama was facing when he came into office where he had a lot of people who essentially were like asylum seekers, you know? You know, one thing about Afghanistan I think people don't, you know, recognize under the Taliban was that you could get in if you're a Muslim without a visa. It was very cheap to live in. And so lots of refugees from the Algerian civil war and Qaddafi's Libya and Ben Ali's regime in Tunisia and, you know, Egypt and everywhere else in the Arab world ended up there. It was kind of like the drain hole of the Arab world. Um, desperate people who couldn't go home for political reasons, um, often just because they were religious Muslims in a country that, that viewed that with suspicion because is religious or, or, or political Islam was viewed as a threat to, you know, Qaddafi's regime. Right. Um, they ended up in Afghanistan. They ended up getting swept up. And then Obama, when he cleared a bunch of these people in 2009, needed to find European countries to take them because it was politically unacceptable to release them in the U.S. and give them asylum, right? After everything we said about them. Well, there's a similar problem right now. You know, out of the 16 folks who were cleared for release, 11 of them um, are Yemenis. The U.S. doesn't want to send people back to Yemen. It never really has because it views the political situation there as too unstable. There's not really a government, and even when there was, um, it was viewed as both unwilling and incapable of monitoring these people after their, their repatriation for life, which is a ground rule that the U.S. imposes on any country that takes somebody, right? Essentially, we want them watched forever. Uh, we want them not to have travel documents for years, right? It's all, you know, the kind of typical situation of a miserable asylum seeker in a country that doesn't really do well by asylees, right? This is what we impose on every country. So, you know, we are hopeful that in the next year or so, you know, there are a number of candidates in, in the um, uh, Arabian Peninsula for countries that might be willing to take um, a big batch of these cleared Yemenis and, uh, and maybe essentially kind of give them asylum um, and let them kind of resettle there and start new lives. Already been done under Obama um, for in Oman, and, uh, and hopefully they'll manage to pull that off. And then there's a handful of other folks, a stateless Rohingya, Tunisian, and so forth, right? 
One interesting thing, though, about this batch um, of 16 uh, cleared folks is that um, uh, 10 of them were held in CIA secret prisons at some point. Um, Not all of them um, high-value detainees who were moved to Gitmo out of the black sites in 2006, but, you know, a bunch of them spent, you know, some amount of time, sometimes as long as a year and change um, in CIA detention facilities. That's why they weren't cleared under Obama. A lot of them only got cleared under the the review process that's been institutionalized for seven or eight years now. A lot of them only got cleared under Biden. Um, And the reason was every agency in the U.S. government that is relevant, you know, the military, the FBI, the CIA, they they get a black ball, they get a veto over clearance. And for years, the CIA was vetoing uh, the clearance of anybody who spent time in its prison, as far as I can tell. That's what they were doing in order to keep them from talking about what happened to them. Um, so again, torture, sort of the original sin, even for people who are cleared and waiting to go home or to some third country. Thanks so much for sharing your reflections today. Hey, thank you for having me, Stefan. And thank you for your good work um, on the legal side and also um, with the podcast. That was a conversation with Shayana Karadal of the Center for Constitutional Rights. As you heard, uh, we were looking at the realities today around those detained in Guantanamo Bay and the persisting injustice of those who are detained without trial, uh, without charge, and really are existing outside of you know what is generally understood to be a legal framework for imprisonment. The Center for Constitutional Rights have been working on this file for decades now, so I encourage you to look up their work. They're based in New York, but have been one of the principal organizations defending the rights of those detained at Guantanamo Bay. This has been another edition of Free City Radio. I host and produce the show. I'm Stefan Christoph. We air on CKUT 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays on CGLO. 1690 a.m. also in Geogiage, Montreal, on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesdays on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays on CFUV in Victoria, British Columbia at 101.9 FM on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m. as well as on Met Radio, 1280 a.m. in Toronto at 5.30 a.m. on Fridays. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just look up Free City Radio. And please tell a friend. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll talk to you next week.